1: Amen. Thanks, Elena. So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. It's good to see you. This is our third pass through uh, this passage here in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, and this morning, uh, we've come to what is, what is really a, a hard topic. Uh, it's a big topic, and I only have a few minutes, and so that, that makes it hard. Uh, and this time of year is all about spreading Christmas cheer so that Santa's sleigh can fly. But it's that cultural sentimentalism that pops up around Christmas when we all settle into into life with our hot cocoa and our Hallmark Christmas movie marathons. That is the enemy of real Christianity. (laughs) You stepped right into that one, Erica. (laughs) And here's why I say that. It's because you don't settle into Christmas. Christmas is not a feel-good story, it, it is disruptive. And this text, particularly this verse we're going to look at this morning, is disruptive of, of our cultural values, and so we should feel disrupted, and that makes this a hard topic too. Now, I've been gentle uh, throughout this series because it's uh, it's Christmas, and that's what I'm supposed to do, I think, but this passage is a prophetic passage, and uh, I have to be a little more prophetic this morning. That probably doesn't mean I raise my voice, it just means that I... I really wrestled even late into the night last night with how, how hard to go after some of these things. But i got to confess, because it's good to make confession. I, and my wife and children come to the second service, so I'll have to say this when they're here then. But I've been really, really hard to live with this week. Uh, they've all told me this, and so that's how I know. And I, I've, I've struggled and wondered why it is. And I really think, not to make excuses or over-spiritualize anything, but I really do believe... I, I, I want to say I feel provoked in spirit... Uh, by what I've been meditating on here, by what's been happening. So one of the things, um, it really is a small world. Uh, technology and globalization really have, uh, really, really changed things. That church in China that we just prayed for uh, is on our hearts because one of the things that's happened with Ashley is she's just been given the opportunity to disciple women uh, remotely and that's turned into a, a ministry of discipling women all over the world and one of the women she's been discipling is in this church in China. Uh, that we got word about, uh, and that we've been giving like weekly, daily, hourly updates. So she got the text this morning, pray their police outside of my door to keep me from going to church. And my pastor's been arrested, and I think maybe hopefully you saw some of this on the news. And the elders, you know, have been arrested, and, and the, the government is cracking down and coming in, and and, and watching that play out. While in America, what the big, the, big, um, the big news in American evangelicalism this week was the pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, who gave his wife a $200,000 Lamborghini car. It just kind of plays with my mind a little bit, to be honest. And I feel, gosh, I feel emotional. I'm sorry. Because just something inside of me stirred up with all of that, because of, you know, my wife's involvement and pastoring and loving you and loving the church and and, uh, wanting us to be reaching into authentic Christianity and knowing how much in our culture is opposed to that. The the reality that the seminary, and one of my professors used to say this, and it really, the seminary that all of us went to uh, has produced not a single martyr. And there's something wrong with that. That, that, that the rest of the world experiences Christianity so much differently than we do. And so we got work to do to kind of cut into, you know, cut into the layers of our cultural baggage to really see what Jesus is saying here. And I always go back to C.S. Lewis, so forgive me for being emotional, I really am trying to kind of get past this so I can move on into this, but um, I, I always go back to C.S. Lewis's words where he said that the world is enemy occupied territory and God has landed in the incarnation In disguise, because as a baby, and he's calling us to participate in a campaign of sabotage, and that is the absolute best description of of what is really happening here in Isaiah 9 as it describes what happened on the first Christmas and what continues to happen in the world, because Isaiah 9 is the promise of a king who would bring a kingdom, and it would be a heavenly kingdom, and this heavenly kingdom uh, wouldn't slip silently into the world that, that I love the song "Silent Night," but there are some weird things about it in, in my, you know, in my opinion, because this kingdom wouldn't slip silently into the world; it would come in direct conflict with the worldly kingdoms. Which is why, if you read the text, Herod was so upset because he realized he knew that Jesus's reign would mean the undoing of his. And Christianity is the promise of a kingdom; it's so much more than individual salvation. The good news of Christianity is that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness of sins. Our relationship with God can be made right again, yes. But then out of that flows a whole new way of doing things, a campaign of sabotage to use Lewis's words again, so that when Jesus came into the world, heaven came with him. Heaven is here. That's what we believe, right? Heaven has come into the world. Heaven has broken in and is here among us. And slowly and in small ways, but surely and inevitably, the worldly kingdoms of selfishness and greed and corruption and oppression are being dismantled and replaced. So much so that the Bible says the world is passing away. The world is passing away. And all of that, all of that is the phrase, that door's open in the back, if somebody wants to go close it, that might be helpful, thank you. I joke, I love that, it means we're an urban church. Like, we're an urban church in the heart of downtown. <laughs> of course, that was a, probably a four-wheeler or some kind of Polk County redneck mobile out there that did that, but okay. And right at this moment too, see, Satan is real. All of what I just described is that phrase uh, in, ch- in chapter 9, verse 7 in Isaiah's prophecy, with justice and righteousness. Okay, that's really We're focused on verse 4 and then on that phrase in verse 7, with justice and righteousness. It's such an important phrase in the Bible, and it's such a threatening concept for first world Christians, because if we understand the teaching of the Bible here, we should feel a little bit like Herod did. It should feel like our lives are being dismantled. But let's be honest, if Christianity is what we claim, if Christmas is the invasion of heaven into the world and the birth of a child who was God in the flesh, well, that sort of thing doesn't just happen and then things just go on the way they were before. You with me? If the, if the incarnation is true, then it changes everything. The world can't be the same. And that's the point Isaiah is making in, in verses two through five. We've noted this every week. There's a series of reversals, four of them. We're taking one each of the weeks of of Advent. So uh, in verse 2, it's darkness that turns to light. And in verse 3, it's sadness that turns to joy. And then in verse 4, which is our uh, our focus this morning, there's the reversal that, that happens not just, we're told, on a personal level, but it begins to even filter out and happen on a corporate level in the church among those actively participating in the campaign of sabotage. And even as they go out into the world, even in society being changed by their influence and by their presence, so that oppression and, justice, and injustice excuse me will become righteousness, we're told. So it's this idea of righteousness. So we're, the righteousness of the child king's reign this morning. And righteousness is a word that just means straight or right. And I like Carl Ellis' definition the best, to be honest. He says righteousness is a relational covenantal term. It means to do right by the other party in the covenant. And so we are right with God only by doing right by God, which begs the question well, how in the world can we ever be right with God because none of us has done right by God? Well, we're right with God only through the one who has done right by God, Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel, but it doesn't end there, however. There are horizontal implications of these things that we say we believe in the relationships we share with one another in what it means to be a body of people that all believe the same thing in the world, and even for the society in which we live, there are social implications of the gospel, and that's where this text takes us, so it's where we have to go this morning as well as we kind of wrap our heads around this theme of righteousness. And here are the three things that I want us to see from the text, okay? I wanna just highlight these three things. Uh, I wanna talk about the world without righteousness. Secondly, the new world with righteousness, which is coming in Jesus, And then what that means for our work, how do we do the work of the new world, even as we live in the old, okay? And so first, first I think there's a description here in verse 4 of the world without righteousness. It's described there, if you look, as a yoke of burden and as a rod of oppression. And these are the images of bondage. And so for Israel, something very tangible would come to mind when they read this because they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, of course, and then were brought into the land. But what's happening contextually in this this passage is that the Assyrians, the the overwhelming military power of that day, had come and had taken the northern tribes into exile so that they were again under a yoke of burden and a rod of oppression like they were back in the days when they were in Egypt. And, And then, of course, in 586, about 140 years later, it would happen to Judah as well, so that God's people would again be cast out of the land and made to live as uh, captives in a foreign place under a oppressive authoritarian authoritarian king. And So this image is here and it's expanded throughout the Bible to show us that the world in many ways is a place of oppression. So the first implication I think, and there are a couple here, is that the, 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 the first implication is that for all of us this experience of sin, sin is slavery. And all the commentators point out that the historical examples of Israel's slavery are emblematic of our spiritual slavery. So sin, uh, as Christians talk about it, is much more than just doing bad things. It's not just an action. It is a state or it is a power that we need to be delivered from. So Fleming Rutledge says this, sin is not something we commit. It's something that we're in. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul writes that sin and death are tyrants that reign over those under its power. Sin is a kingdom, in other words, it is a government, and we need to be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. If you want to know, you know, we are chained to the wall in the dungeon of sin's castle held as prisoners. I should probably use the imagery of the passage, though. We're under a yoke, Isaiah says, verse 4. We are being driven along, in other words. The yoke is, is the thing that goes on the, you know, the shoulders of of the beast as they're being driven through the fields to plow and do the work. And we are being driven along. We're not in control. The the yoke of sin is upon our backs. And the yoke of sin is our out of control desires and impulses and instincts that shape our behavior and decision-making. And for the most part, we can't change. We're not even aware, in many cases, of the desires deep within our hearts that are driving our behavior. And sin reigns, we're told, in our mortal bodies making us obey its passions. And all of that is summed up in the phrase in the Bible a couple of places, but I think of Romans 6 where Paul talks about us being slaves to unrighteousness. He says we offer up our members, and our members are uh, our, our minds and our eyes and our ears and our tongue, our hands, the work we do and our hearts. We offer up these members as instruments for unrighteousness. So everywhere we go, Paul says, all the different parts of us are because we're being driven as uh, by the slave master sin. We're we're just everywhere we go. We're doing unrighteousness. Now here we have to make a, a, a clear definition. And in the Bible, here's the way. And this is really the take home for today too. So if you don't have, hear anything else, here's here's really what I want you to take home. In the Bible, a righteous person, and I've said this before, a righteous person is someone who disadvantages themselves for the sake of others. An unrighteous person is a person who advantages themselves at the expense of others. So unrighteousness then is this this, um, advantaging, the strategic advantaging of myself at everybody else's expense, and that is the sinful desire that we're so enslaved to. To be selfishly putting ourselves and our needs and our wants first in our hearts and acting out of self-interest And not self-giving love because we're afraid, because we're needy, because nobody else is looking out for me. So if I don't, who will? I'd better be. And so whatever I have to do to get ahead and secure my future, and it doesn't matter who I have to step on to make it happen, we can't stop looking out for number one. That's our slavery. Now the second implication, I think, is not just that sin is slavery, sin is, sin is slavery to unrighteousness and just the way we go about our lives and causing all of this trouble, but the second implication is that unrighteous people, like us, create systems and structures that are unrighteous. And so, one of the things the Bible teaches us is that sin is not a private matter. It is it is the breakdown of relationships—a relationship with God, of course, but a relationship with others, and even with creation itself. So, sin corrupts individuals, but it also corrupts human society by creating systems and structures of unrighteousness. So, an un a righteous excuse me an unrighteous structure or an unrighteous law is something like an institution or a law or some kind of some kind of structure that systematically advantages one group of people by disadvantaging another group. The same way, you know, so it works, it works in society the way it works with, with individuals in the Bible. Gosh, the Bible has so much to say about institutions, practices, laws, structures that systematically advantage one group of people by disadvantaging another. The Bible has so much to say about it and I'm, it's going to be unsatisfactory, but I've got to tell you, I can't get into all of it today don't have time it has to be enough for us to know that the bible in the bible the biblical concept of justice implicitly teaches this and and we have to just be aware of how of how ignorant and how blind we can be because our lives are so insulated from this at times so i have a new friend uh his name is Brandon he's a he's an african american guy who's now in our network he's an associate pastor at one of our churches uh, when he when he is ordained in our presbytery in the next year, he will be. I want you to just. I just want you to feel this. He will be the first African American pastor in the history of the Presbyterian Church of America in this part of the state of Florida. Something wrong with that. So we've been talking, and uh, and he used an illustration. He said, "Listen, listen. This is just. He's just so." So he's the one black guy in the room with 15 other white guys every Wednesday as we talk about, uh, pray for him. Can you imagine how hard that must be for him? Because we're stupid. I mean, we really are, okay? And so he's just been talking, and he kind of interrupted us the other day. He said, listen, if you want to know what this feels like, here's, I'll, he, here's my analogy I would use. He said, it's like, uh, it's like I've been invited to play Monopoly. Uh, so I'm in the game. I mean, somebody's offered me, an, he's, come and play with us, but the problem is that, that I'm entering the game kind of midstream. It's been going on for a long time. And so I get my $200, uh, And but when I roll the dice, I, I quickly realize that I'm, I'm invited to play the game, but all the property's already been bought up. And there's, noth- there's really nothing left for me to do. So all I can do is roll the dice and hope to get around the board without having to pay too much out so that I can collect another $200 and try to get it around it again. And that's all I'm doing is going around and around and around. But there's really no there's really no sense of of me being able to advantage because all the advantage has already been taken now that's not been my experience it's probably not been yours but that doesn't mean that he's wrong and i would say biblically it's really not up for debate and neither is it a matter of debate that we're all complicit so i think it's time to listen not to tell minorities and other disenfranchised groups that they are wrong to feel the way they do and and listen my great burden i think the reason i've been so provoked all week is that, I, I mean, I get nervous even pushing into this, um, but, you know, justice and righteousness, this, this correcting and dismantling of the systems and the structures and the institutions that systematically prioritize and advantage certain groups of people to the disadvantagement of others, this is, this is kind of ground floor Christian identity and ethics, if you read the Old Testament particularly. But if you're a Christian in America, your church experience drives you away from these ideas for a couple of reasons. One is because consumerism and individualism have so just infested our, our experience and approach to church. Did anybody see the John Christ uh, virtual reality church thing on the, on the internet this week? Hilarious. He wakes up, he's in bed, he puts on these, these virtual reality goggles and basically he's like, what kind of worship uh, pastor do you want? And do you want him to wear skinny jeans or, I mean, you can maybe basically tailor make your pastor and your worship pastor and your whole experience without ever leaving the confines of your bed. And I mean, and it's, you know, it's hyperbole and it's sarcasm, but there, there's an element of truth, isn't there? I mean, if I could tell you how many times somebody comes to me and say i'm i i i'm leaving the church because i'm not getting when did the church become a place where we just consume but it's it's so much a part of what we experience but not only that not only that there's this other part where evangelicalism has become so closely identified and associated with political conservatism that anything that sounds like a political politically liberal agenda dismissed out of hand and so there are these whole blocks of the teachings of the scripture that we just that we just kind of abandon and huge holes develop in our theology we got some work to do you see what I'm saying we got some work to do to really wrestle with these things and 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 so that's why I say there's this world without righteousness we've been sent into but we've got to identify it and and make sure we know but the second thing is is there's the promise here also of of a new world of righteousness the reign of the child king whose government would be defined by righteousness and then we're told in verse seven to establish it and uphold it and so the gospel in the new testament or excuse me the gospel in the old testament could be boiled down if we wanted to to this here's the whole gospel message ready god reigns that's it So Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news. Is is that a familiar verse? You you all know that? Who publish peace, who bring the news, the good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who say to Zion, and here's the message, your God reigns. In Mark 1, it says Jesus came preaching and proclaiming the gospel, and this is what he said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand The time is fulfilled. So the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, the good news was that God would forgive sins, that he would make a way for our strange relationships to be made whole again, but the result of that would be a kingdom, a whole new way of living of peace and happiness and righteousness, a whole new world where it would be possible for us to do right by one another again, and everything would be the way it's supposed to be. And not just sin, but also all of the systems and structures of sin would be undone. But how? Right, isn't that the question? How will God accomplish this work in the world? And the answer, in the Old Testament particularly, is the king. There would be a king, the son of David, who would come and would conquer all of God's enemies and establish a throne from which he would rule over not just Israel, but the whole world, establishing and upholding righteousness and peace for all people and this is the clear expectation i could give you 100 100 scriptures if you want to write a few down second samuel 7 psalm 72 isaiah 11 jeremiah 23 ezekiel 37 and we read anybody we read last week in zechariah all about this zechariah 3 and zechariah 7 and thus the crisis of isaiah's prophecy as we come to it this morning that this kingdom The kingdom of David, at this point when Isaiah's writing had come to an end with the exile, no king had come and done what God said he would do. The kings had failed. The house of David was just a stump cut down by invading armies. But Isaiah said, just two pages to the right of this this chapter here, Isaiah said that out of that stump would come a shoot that would come forth, a branch from the root of David that would bear fruit. And and, and so Isaiah is saying, listen, all the kings have failed, but that's because the real king hasn't come yet. There's still a king. And this king would be different than all the other kings. He would be able to do what the other kings could not do because every other king was either not humble enough or not powerful enough to bring righteousness, but not this king. He would be Powerful enough to overthrow the oppressor, but humble enough not to become an oppressor himself. And that's the only way to break the rod of oppression. He would be humble, because we're told here, verse seven, look, a child. I mean, think about the nativity stories in the gospels. It just screams humility, doesn't it? The child king was, was not born in a palace. He was born where they kept the animals, and he was not born into an aristocratic family. Mary and Joseph were two nobodies. We know from the Bible that they were a poor working class family. The great king came into the world and hardly anybody noticed and the whole thing just screams humility because that's what he's like. That's what God's like. later in his life, Jesus said, I don't do anything on my own. And he made every effort. Anybody else just blow you away when you read the gospels and you see how hard he's making an effort to stay out of the spotlight, even as his fame grew. He wasn't enamored by celebrity. He washed feet. Think about that. The one who made you, when he came, washed feet. Such profound humility. That's the kind of king we need. But not just humility, not just humble, but also powerful because remember who he is, not just a son of David. In other words, the reason the other kings had failed is because they were earthly kings, but he, this one that Isaiah's talking about here in Isaiah nine, he, will be the king of kings. He will be God himself. So we come to Luke chapter 1, and here's what the angel says to Mary. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's almost a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 9, but the angel goes on. Mary says, How in the world is that going to happen because I've never been with a man? And the angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be holy, the son of God. He would not lack power to bring justice because he would be God. I mean, Jesus lived and ministered with incredible power. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he spoke with authority, even in death, he was raised and ascended to a place of even greater power at the right hand of God to execute his righteousness in the world. And it is because he is both humble Enough and powerful enough to do what none of the other kings could do. That he is the one who can bring the righteousness that we need. There is no selfishness in his heart. There is no lack of resources or strength in him. So remember our definition. A righteous person is someone who disadvantages himself for the sake of others. Doesn't that describe him perfectly? Jesus Christ, our king, did not come into the world for personal gain. He was... He was the king, but he did not come to gain a throne. He actually left his throne in heaven to come to the earth to take up a cross. He does not demand our lives for his, which is his right. He gave up his life for us. God, the good news of the gospel is God does not advantage himself at our expense. He disadvantages himself for our sake, all the way to death, to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray, as the as the song says. That is the beating heart of our gospel. Now, what flows out of that? I mean, what flows out of that? If the world is the way it is because sin has all of us running around saying, not you, me, not you, me, not you, me. That's what the world without God is like. Then what happens when God enters the story and when he says, not me, you? Well, in that passage in Luke 1, Mary rightly expects Cosmic shakeup. If you remember, she begins to sing about the mighty being brought down from their thrones and the humble being exalted, and the hungry being filled and the rich being sent away empty. It's this apocalyptic language of reversal that everything, all of the arrangements, are going to be rearranged. And it's familiar to the Bible. You find similar things in Hannah's song, in the teaching of Jesus, which can be summed up in the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Jesus is saying everything's going to go upside down. And what does it all of it mean? Well, it means I think this. It means that the love of Jesus is so great that it not only changes hearts, it also topples the unrighteous power structures of the world. That God's salvation is not a private matter. God is not just saving people, he's saving a people. He's rescuing you and me. He's rescuing us as a people out of our not you, me lifestyle and then unleashing us in the world with a not me, you mission. And that's the last thing, what happens then? if we really get unleashed like that, well, there's work. There's work that we need to do, the work of the new world that's already here even as we live in the old. And we live in this unique time between the first advent and the second. Jesus is the child king, Isaiah foresaw, And so we celebrate him at Christmas. That means that the kingdom of righteousness is already in the world. I mean, Jesus announced it at the beginning of his ministry, the kingdom is at hand, it's, it's here. He even said at one point, the kingdom is within you. So the kingdom has come. However, at the same time, the kingdom has not fully come. Now, don't get confused here. This is hard, but there's still a great deal of unrighteousness in the world, and therefore our mission, the Bible is very clear, explicitly clear, that our mission in light of that reality is to do justice. So That word righteous describes something that's right or straight or the way that it should be. Well, what do you do when you come across something in you and your family or in society that is not right, that is not straight, that is not the way that it should be. Well, the Bible says you do justice. And justice is the rectification of the wrong. It's the correction back to righteousness. It's bringing things, using whatever power or influence or resources you've been given to bring things that are wrong back into a state of righteousness through confrontation and then change. And this is our our heritage as the people of God. This is what the prophets said over and over and over again. You've not done this, and so I'm sending you out of the land. You know, the prophets go so far to say, would you please stop having worship services until you can figure out how to get out there and do this work I've told you to do? Because as long as you don't do that stuff out there and then come in here and sing to me, I'm not really happy about that, God says. I mean, it's strong language in the prophets. And so we have to make sense of this, and one of the things we have to say is that social justice is not the social gospel. So if you're, let me just talk to the Christians for a minute in the room. We have, to be, we have to be clear about this. We must not confuse what the gospel is with what the gospel does. There is the gospel and the results of the gospel. And the gospel is the good news proclamation of a king who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for amenity. It is the good news of the grace of Jesus who was rich and became poor to make all who believe in him spiritually rich. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, the gospel is not a divine rehabilitation program for the world. It is news that Jesus has done right by God, and in him, you can be righteous too. But believing the gospel leads to becoming the gospel. Let's don't forget that. And a righteous person disadvantages themselves for the sake of others. A righteous person also seeks to dismantle unrighteous social and political structures that advantage one group and keep them in the majority or in power by disadvantaging others. And that's what it means to do justice in the world, to side with the weak and the oppressed, to care for widows and orphans and single moms and refugees and migrant workers and other vulnerable people. If you have power, to use it not for your own advantage, but to to empower and to equip the vulnerable because that is what Jesus did with his power, is what he did with his riches. The whole movement of the incarnation is the all-powerful God divesting himself of his power to give it to others divesting himself of his wealth to give it to others. At the end of the Lord of the Rings, you didn't think we were going to get through Advent without a Lord of the Rings reference, did you? I mean, let's be honest. The true king is finally revealed. He wins the decisive battle over the enemy. Uh, And then Tolkien includes a chapter called The Houses of Healing. It's my favorite chapter in, in the whole trilogy. And the king, as he's one, he sets about to heal all of the wounded. He comes into the houses of healing where the wounded have been gathered, and he goes about healing. And, uh, and Tolkien writes this, he says, Soon word had gone out that the king was indeed come among them, and after war he brought healing. And there's an interchange uh, with Faramir, who is uh, the, uh, one, of the, one of the characters that, throughout the story who has uh, been badly wounded in battle and is on the verge of death. And the king comes to him uh, with his healing hands, and he touches him, and he brings strength into his body, and here are his words. Here's the interchange. He says, walk no more in shadows, but awake. Rest for a while and take food, but be ready when I return. And Faramir said, I will, Lord, for who would lie idle when the king has come? Who would lie idle when the king has come? We have work to do. Amen. Christmas gives us, Christmas invites us to rest in all that God has done for us. It also gives us work to do, and so let's put ourselves to that work. So, Father, in these last moments of this service, would you remind us yet again of your great love for us? It's 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 embodied for us in this meal that we celebrate together. And so, come now as we gather around this table. Show us again, make known to our eyes, not just our eyes, but to our hearts, the reality of your self-giving love and your body broken and your blood shed for us. And remind us that you've said to us, do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Do this meal? No, not just this meal, but what you're calling us to is to go and to live in this world doing justice and righteousness. Righteousness giving ourselves away in the same way you've given yourself away for us. That even through us, the world might be healed. But we need your spirit, so come and work in us in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If your heart is longing like mine to sing more in this moment, just know it's my fault that we can't because I went too long in the sermon. And we have to start another service in 10 minutes. Um, but here's the thing, okay? Okay. Here's my burden, is that we not give in to despair over any of these things, but that the, 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 the interaction that we should have with this word from the Lord this morning is absolute wonder at the heart of God and Jesus, and then, and then a, a, a freedom and joy to go and give ourselves away the way that he has come to give himself away for us. So wonder and joy, that should be the residue of today, amen? So hold on to these words until they are, okay? Because this is the promise that as as you go, he sends you, not alone, but he promises to go with you, not only to go with you, it's better than that, he promises to go in you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.